Amen. Good morning, Grace Point. Let's stand as we approach the Word of God. How many is glad to be in the house of the Lord today? Amen. Praise God. Today, um, I'm going to not read the Scriptures, but just pray and then let you be seated because I want to, as I read the Scriptures, I want to talk about them. Uh, And so we're going to do it a little bit different. I want to speak on a subject today called God's undivided heart. God's undivided heart. How many knows that God has an undivided heart when it comes to you you and I, when it comes to us? And uh, I want to tell you that God's heart's totally undivided. Uh, Many of us, many of us, if not most of us, uh, sadly grew up in a religious system that perpetuates the idea that somehow God is bipolar, uh, really, that he loves us, uh, but that he's also angry with us, that he has forgiven us, but that he's not forgiven us, that uh, he has accepted us, but sometimes he rejects us, and it's just not true. Um, somehow it perpetuates that God looks at our behavior, and if he finds that behavior not good, then he turns away from us. It makes us believe or see God that he's sitting in a swivel chair. And when you do good, he's facing you, he's there for you. You do bad, he swivels, takes his presence, takes his, turns his face from you, doesn't hear your prayers, doesn't answer your prayers. If you're hearing stuff like that where you go to church, um, you need to know that that's a religious spirit that's talking to you and not God. Amen? Uh, One of the biggest problems uh, in the church is false doctrine and a misrepresentation of the character and the nature of God. And uh, there is a kingdom truth that God is releasing that is much, much higher than your local church truth. Yeah? Amen? And... uh, we need to know that today. We need to, that's the only way that we're going to have confidence and boldness to approach a throne room of grace and to come before God and live our lives seven days a week, 24 hours a day with a total peace and confidence in God's goodness. Amen? Sound like something you want to hear about today? Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the spirit of grace. Thank you for illuminating our minds, renewing our minds so that true transformation, Lord God, that transformation will be seen and known and experienced in our lives every day. We give you praise, honor, and glory in Jesus' name. Everybody say it. Amen. Amen. Shake somebody's hand, smile real big before you sit down. Say, welcome to Grace Point. Hallelujah. When the worship was going on there, uh, it was so wonderful today. Thank you, team. Did an awesome job. Uh, Amen. Bless them. You can feel it. They're not just knocking out a few religious songs. They're, you know. And and I felt this so strong um, during that last song that the Spirit of the Lord was saying that there's a door open in heaven, and his name is Jesus. 
And he still stands there and beckons, come up here, come into my presence, that you may experience my joy so that your joy may be full. And even in your old age, I shall bear thee in my arms. Even when your hairs turn gray, I have known you from birth. I have borne you in my arms, and I will keep you in the way that I've called. You need to know God's promises like that. And I felt God's heart just reaching for so many of you. There's somebody here that I think you've received some news that would try to make you uh, believe that you're not going to live to be gray-headed and old and live out your days because of some uh, diagnosis or some prognosis, but that's not true. You have a promise from God. You have promises in his word. If you want to know where that promise is located, just look in Isaiah 45 and just read that whole chapter. You'll find it in there. It's my promise, but if you want to borrow it, I'll loan it to you. It's okay. Uh, I'll share. Amen. I want to just say several things to you before I read some scriptures, and I've just felt this all week. Uh, it's impossible. You listen to this. It's impossible for the Father to see you disconnected from him. If you're born again, it is impossible for God to see you disconnected from him. Listen to me. Your connection to God is not dependent upon your performance. That's that religious snake again. One day we're going to be able to cut the head completely off of that thing and be done with that. Amen. Uh, listen to me. You don't get things from God because of your good behavior. You get things from God because of your placement in Jesus. That's the only reason. You Listen to me. You may be struggling here to be one with God. But I want to tell you something. God is not struggling to be one with us. I've already put out like five bombs already. If you'll just receive it and believe it. Uh, amazing verses, Romans eight thirty one. Apostle Paul trying to, by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, to get us to understand the confidence that we should have in our relationship with God. In verse 31 of Romans 8, he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Listen, that means you can't even be against yourself. God won't allow it. Some of you are trying hard. I hear things. You can't be against yourself. God won't tolerate it. Nothing can be against you. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely that means it doesn't cost you anything. Give us how many things? All. All things. Now, here's a great question that you should ask God right now in your present circumstances. God, what are the all things that you want to release to me right now in my present circumstance? He would love to answer that for you. He would love to show you what those all things that he has freely given to us. In fact, Second Peter says that God has already deposited in your spirit everything you need, 
all things, it actually says the word all things that pertain to life and godliness in Christ Jesus. And it says it comes to you through the knowledge of him. That's why you're sitting listening to me talk this morning. Because I'm sharing the word of God with you. And the more knowledge you have of the Lord Jesus and, and his finished work, the more of those all things you'll discover that he's already given you. You ever pray prayers and, God, and you ask for things and God don't answer? He doesn't answer you. And when that happens, listen, when that happens to you, when you're praying prayers and, and, and you're praying for things that you believe or know that's in the Bible and you don't hear anything, any response from God, and you're asking him for those things. The only reason God's not going to answer you because that is God saying to you, by not saying anything to you, I've already given to you what you're praying and asking me for. And if I was to answer that prayer, I would be confirming your disbelief in my word. So when you pray for the mind of Christ, God will never answer that prayer. Because he's already given you the mind of Christ when you got born again. The Bible never says to pray for that, ask for that, or believe for that. The Apostle Paul said, we have the mind of Christ. You might not be availing yourself of that tremendous mind, but you have it. Where is it at? It's not in your cranium, it's in your spirit. That's why you can be double-minded. And when you're double-minded, the Bible says you're unstable. Because you're trying to be led by two different worlds and two different thoughts and you can't do two separate things at the same time. That's what makes you uh, stressed out. Stressed out. So when you pray for things and you don't hear God say anything, it's because you already have that that you're asking him for. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? What does that mean? What do you think that the best that heaven had was? Jesus. How many would agree that Jesus is the best that heaven has? Did God give him to you? While you were yet a sinner, Christ died for who? For you, for me. So in other words, God's given you the best he had to offer you. He's given you already before you ever signed a contract, you would accept him. God went ahead through faith because God has faith. God is faith. So God expressed that faith by giving his son with no guarantee that you would accept him, but only a hope in his heart that you would believe the good news of his love. So if God's given you the best, anything else you ask him for is going to be less than that, right? So God's already given you the best, so anything you can think of to pray or ask God for will be far less than what he's already given you. And he gave you his best while you were still a sinner. So it's not based on what you do or don't do or your behavior. If, you, if I give you the best I have, if I give you a filet mignon, you should not be afraid to ask me for a hot dog. If I'll give you a fillet freely, as many fillets as you want, I will sure give you a weenie, <laughs> a hot dog, right? Don't be timid asking God for stuff because he's already given you the best. Anything you ask him for is going to be far less. 
And God's trying to tell you here that if I've given you the best and I didn't spare my own son for you, then how will I not freely give you all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Now let me say, God's saying like, who shall bring a charge against my elect? It's like God saying, anybody wants to charge you with something, with sin, with unrighteousness, with not being worthy to go to heaven, then they can't get to you unless they come through me. Because it's Christ that died. They didn't die for you, so they need to be quiet. Christ died. So who, who is it that can bring a charge? God's saying, they, they can't, it doesn't matter what they say. Who is it that can bring a charge against God's elect? I've elected you. I've chosen you. God said, they got to go through me. And when it says that, that who can condemn you? He said, Christ died. How can they condemn that? But he says that he makes intercession. A lot of Christians think that that verse means that Jesus is praying for you. It doesn't say Jesus is praying for you. It said he makes intercession for you. Well, it's an intercession prayer. The word intercession means to make a way. Okay? Now, don't get upset, but if Jesus is praying for you, why are you in such a mess? Don't you think Father answers his prayers? Doesn't seem like Jesus isn't doing too good with some of you. Come on now, if he's praying for you. That's not a verse to make Christians even more lazy. You've got to pray for yourself. You've got to do your own speaking and your own praying and your own proclamation. It's Jesus is not praying for you. He's already done that on the cross. I'm not saying by that that he doesn't care. He's indifferent. I'm telling you that Jesus makes intercession. He is the way. In other words, if you wanted to see a king... In the Old Testament, you just couldn't walk up there, knock on a door, and walk in and see the king. You had to have an intercessor. You had to have someone to make a way for you to see the king and to introduce you to the king and to bring you before the king. Is that right? So Jesus is the way to the Father. He is the only way. He is the way, the truth and the life. So there is one way. So sometimes when people read verses like, broad is the way, you know, wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and few there be that find it. You know what a bully with a Bible will do with that verse? He'll scare the hell out of you with that verse. Pardon me. He will scare you with that verse and tell you that you're going to be able to try so hard, and, but it's so, it's, the way is so straight. You've got to follow our religious rules or you're not going to make it. Straight is the gate, narrow is the way, and few there be that find it. All that means is that when it comes to eternal life, God is very narrow-minded. There is one mediator, one intercessor between man and God, and that is the man Christ Jesus. There is no other way to get to the Father except through Jesus. That's all he's saying. Straight is the gate. Narrow is the way. That door that's open in heaven saying, come up here, that door is Jesus. Some of you think the presence of God is an event. 
if that door is Jesus and then Jesus is in you, then the presence of God is always with you and there is no obstacle to the presence of God in your life. No obstacle to the God's presence. You don't have to work it up. You don't have to have two fast songs, one slow song to get in the presence of God. You carry the presence of God in you because you carry Christ in you and that door is in you because he's the door. I love my job telling good news every Sunday. I just come, I'm a, I am a uh, broadcaster of good news. <laughs> God says, I'm the one that has made the way for you. And if I've made the way, can't nobody mess up the way. I have made intercession for you. You can come before the Father anytime you want to. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation this is uh, contemplative questioning. So the answer to all of these is no. Or distress, no. Persecution, no. Famine, no. Nakedness, no. Per peril or sword. Paul's real serious about this. Can you see this? Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. When's the last time you conquered something through him that was trying to conquer you? Because he's already conquered everything that was against you. And if you rest in him, it's already done. I don't understand that, brother. You're not supposed to. It's called faith. I'm just asking you to believe it, not understand it. I just want you to believe it. For I am persuaded. See, that's the key. Maybe you're not persuaded yet. You've got to be persuaded. I am persuaded, Paul said, that neither death nor life, that covers a lot of stuff, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even the church you go to can't separate you from the love of God. You want real change to come in your life? Real change will only occur when you see the unchanging God. When you see God's undivided, unchanging heart towards you, that is what will impact you and cause change to come visible in your life. You remember God said in Malachi 3, 6, I am the Lord, I do not change we first had children, I told my wife that when we brought them home, I am the Lord of this house and I do not change these diapers. God's not talking about diapers here. He just says, I don't change. I don't change. Listen to me. You're dealing with the one and only person in the universe who never changes. On your best day, and on your worst day, God is exactly the same towards you. The Bible says so. Jesus is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. See, when you believe that, this will give you boldness and confidence in your relationship with him. Because he won't change on you. James chapter 1 and verse 17 
uh, it just says in that verse in the New King James that God is the God that doesn't change. In other words, there's no shadow or variance of turning in him. He doesn't change. But I wanted to read God's word translation of that verse in James 1.17. It says, every good and present and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father who has made the sun, moon, and stars. The Father doesn't change, this verse says, like the shifting shadows produced by the sun and the moon. The Father doesn't change. He's the same. Can you imagine the confidence you can have in a person who's going to always be the same towards you? If you're covered in mud and filth, they're going to be the same towards you. If you're having a brilliant, wonderful day, they're going to be the same towards you. If you've got the spirit of stupid on you, they're going to be the same towards you. They're going to love you the same. They're not going to fluctuate in how they feel towards you. They're not going to change. God's not sitting in a swivel chair. He never turns his back, nor does he ever take his presence from you. To do so would mean he would have to change. And he's already told us, I'm not going to change. God likes that about himself. God's methodology changes, but God himself is predictable. He will always love you. He will always hear your prayer. He will never leave you. He will never, never forsake you. He is always for you. He is never against you. See, if there's anything in you that real gut level honestly will say that when you pray you don't feel real confidence, you want to come to God and start off talking to him about your sin and begging him to forgive you and because you, you've been told that if you don't do that, he don't hear your prayers and you've got to kind of clean the deck off before you can talk. All that's religious lies. You mean I don't, I don't have to talk to him about my sin? Never. Why, you're accusing him of not taking away the sin of the world? He took away all the sin of the world except yours, and he wants to talk to you about that. He said, I I can't talk to you about it because I don't remember it. The Bible says, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, it's talking about comparing the Old Testament priesthood, Levitical priesthood, with Jesus, the new priest of God. The Melchizedek of God, we talked about last Sunday. And it says, and every priest stands, this is the old Levitical priesthood, every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So this was the Old Testament priest's job, that they would stand, there was no furniture called a chair in the Old Testament Mosaic temple, tabernacle. You with me? Why was there no chair? Because they can never sit down. Why can the priests never sit down? Because their work is never finished. They stand ministering daily, and they are offering repeatedly, notice the wordage, the same sacrifices which don't do anything to sin. It don't take them away. And God's heart then has always been to take away sin, not to merely cover it. But verse 12 says, but this man, notice it's capital M, who is this man? What's his name? But this man, Jesus, after he offered how many sacrifices? One sacrifice for sins, and and, and that sacrifice is going to last how long? Forever. So when this man, Jesus, offered one sacrifice for sin, 
and he, and, and he said that was forever, then he sat down at the right hand of God. Why did Jesus sit down? Was he tired? Was his legs hurting? Was his feet hurting? No, he sat down because he was finished. And that's what Jesus said, the last words he said on the cross. It is finished. And he sat down at the right hand of God. That's why under the old priesthood, no chairs allowed because they were always dealing with sin and offering blood sacrifice, animal sacrifices that could never take away sin. Now I want to ask you something. What posture are you in right now regarding your sin? Are you still standing? Are you still trying to overcome it? Are you running around trying to add your efforts to the work of Jesus on the cross? Or are you seated with him in heavenly places? It is rude for you to be up running around trying to do stuff when Jesus is seated. What you're saying by running around trying to pay for your sins to do penance, to do whatever you want to call it, you're saying that your sacrifice, even though you're seated, was not enough. So I'm still standing and I'm running around and I'm trying to add to your work because I don't think it was sufficient for me. So therefore, I'm not seated with you in heavenly places like Paul said we should be. Are you seated with Christ in heavenly places? What does that mean? That means you're resting in his sacrifice. You're not running around trying to deal with your sin. When you talk like this, they'll always accuse you of, you know, well, he, he, that guy's saying you sin like crazy. No, I'm trying to get you to stop trying to marginalize the work of Jesus on the cross and minimize sin as it's something that you could whip. If you could uh, whip sin, even your own, we need to start worshiping you. You should have come and let Jesus stay home. We should have put you on the cross. We could have put our faith in you. You can't deal with your own sin, mine, or nobody else's. That's why Jesus came. Him who knew no sin became sin. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Well, I know we'll be righteous one day, Brother Dale, when we all get there, when we all get to heaven, over yonder in the glory land, by and by, after a while. All that's religious. You are now the righteousness of God. I don't feel righteous. He didn't say you are now the righteous of God that feels like they're righteous. You're righteous because God says you are, not because you behave righteously. You've been made righteous by a righteous sacrifice. If that bothers you, this next verse is just going to knock your religious head, slam off. Hebrews 10, 14, for by one offering. How many offerings? He, Jesus, has perfected for how long? Ever those who are being sanctified. Now, this is the New King James Version, and the tense there is better communicated in the King James Version. So here's the King James Version of that same verse, Hebrews 10, 14. For by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. The word sanctified means to be made holy, to be set apart. 
you're not being set apart or being made holy by anything you do. You are declared holy. That's in Ephesians chapter 4, if you need to read that verse, that it says that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Holiness is not something you receive, not something you achieve. It is something you receive as a gift from God. Righteousness is not something that you achieve by your efforts and performance. Righteousness is the gift. Paul called it in Romans the gift of righteousness. The revelation of that gift has to come to you. That's why I'm preaching the truth to you. So by one offering, he's perfected forever. Well, nobody's perfect. You better pray to God you are because that's the only people going to heaven are perfect people. And some of you look at me because you have had too many years of religion. Hebrews 10, 14 says he has perfected forever. The word perfected is the same Greek word that Jesus used on the cross. Exact same Greek word. And and when Jesus said finished, they translated it finished in English there. Here, the same Greek word that Jesus used is translated uh, perfected. Same exact word in the Greek. It is finished, Jesus said. You know what that means? Listen, it means perfectly perfect never needing to be done again. Hebrews 12, 23 says that we stand before the general assembly of the church of the firstborn. Our names are registered, it says, in heaven to God the judge of all, and it says this, to the spirits of just men made perfect. So right there, the Bible in the New Testament tells you what's been made perfect in you. Your what? Your spirit. God is the God who, who makes the spirits of justified men, that he's declared justified, they, their spirits have been made perfect. Your spirit is perfect. When you got born again, your spirit got born again, and God dwells in that born again, perfect spirit. Would Jesus live in a filthy house? Would a holy God live in an unholy place? Paul said, don't you know that you are the temple of God and that you're his temple which is holy, which you are? Do you believe God would live in filth? How could God join perfect righteousness and holiness with unrighteousness and unholiness? How could we be one with Christ and yet we be full of sin and filth and, 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 and all that and yet still be one with him? How can you be one like that? You can't be one. You're either one with Christ or we're not. Where we're one, in our spirit we have been joined unto the Lord. We have fellowship with him. You hear these preachers and say, well, you commit a sin, you're out of fellowship with God. You need to do something to get back in fellowship. All that's lies. Are you sitting there trying to get, are you struggling to be close to God? Do you feel like you're a million miles from him sometimes and you want to be close to God, but you feel like you're so far away from the Lord and you're not close to him? All that's lies. Paul said in Ephesians, I've read it to you so many times, but you who were without God in this world, without hope, outside the commonwealth of the covenant promises of God, you who were far off, you know, Without God, without hope. He said, but now, everybody say now. Now you have been made nigh, brought near by what? By the blood of Jesus Christ. So what is it that brought you near to God? The blood of Jesus. 
What is stronger than the blood of Jesus? So what can remove you from being near to God? Nothing. So stop trying to get close to God. I have people all the time say, I wish I was as close to the Lord as you are, Brother Dale. I want to cry when they tell me that. I want to hit them and hug them at the same time. I love them. It breaks my heart that they would feel that they're so far from the Father. It is impossible for God to see you disconnected from him ever. You, it, it doesn't matter how you feel. I don't feel like going, doing things, working and stuff, but I do it. You don't go by your feelings. Come on, that's baby stuff. You go by your faith. You go by your confidence in him. God, I may not feel close to you today. I may not have no goosebumps, you know, and singing glory to God, amazing grace. But I know that you're with me. You're for me. You're not against me. I'm close to you. Nobody can take me from you. I mean, I could stand here. The rest, I could read you all kind of. But God said, once you've been placed in my hand, nobody can pluck you out. There's nobody stronger than me. Once I get a grip on you, can't nothing get a grip on you and pull you out of my presence. You just been lying to you. Don't believe it. You were made perfect by a perfect sacrifice. You're not perfect because you always behave perfect. You're perfect in your spirit because God made you that way. And once you learn to live out of your spirit, to be led by the spirit, you will manifest more of that perfection out to the world for them to see it. Because they can't see your spirit. I have to look at you and go, I know every one of you are perfect by faith. We're not perfect by the way we conduct ourselves. None of us are. None of us are. Man, if you could just see how God sees you. Not how he just sees you like he's playing games with himself, but how you really are. Man, you have way under undervalued what happened to you when you put your faith in Christ. God sees you with no flaws, no spots, no wrinkles, no blemishes, no imperfections. So why don't you just honor his word and the finished work of Jesus on the cross and just say amen to that? <laughs> Can I ask you a question? Did, do you think that Jesus, you know, was in heaven and the Father and the Holy Spirit? Do you think Jesus snuck out of heaven against his Father's wishes and came down to earth to die for our sins? you think he snuck out and done that without the Father's permission? You, you don't think he snuck out of heaven and did that on his own? Hmm. See... Well, then how can you explain how some people will say, you know, this bipolar God we got. Now, God the Father is angry with us on account of our sin. But now Jesus, he's the nice one. <laughs> he, he actually stands between us and the Father, and he's protecting us from the Father's wrath. That is how, that's how... That the Trinity is presented. Father's mean. He just kill you. <laughs> Jesus has got his hands in the chest of the Father. Come on, Daddy, don't kill him now. Come on. I mean, you seen what I did now. Come on, get, 
Come on, chill out, Daddy. Don't, don't wipe them out right now. Come on. And the Holy Spirit, he's just a bird flying around, you know, comes by every now and then. <laughs> oh, man, religion will mess up stuff. What's wrong with that picture? Uh, let me say everything. <laughs> Why? Because it suggests that God in the Son, or let me say it like this, it suggests that Jesus, who was God the Son, and God the Father have different natures. That one of them loves us unconditionally, but the other one can't see past our sin. That's schizo, y'all. That's really messed up. You got to hire a devil to help you misunderstand that truth. Hebrews ten fifteen says, But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is quoting, this is God, this is the covenant that I will make with them. Everybody say, New covenant. After those days, says the Lord, not says Brother Dale, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts. Now, he's not talking about the law that didn't work. He's talking about the law of the Spirit. And in their mind, why would God put the Ten Commandments and the law in your heart when you couldn't keep it the first time? But he said, in their minds, I will write them. Then he adds, listen to this, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember how long? No more. Do you all believe God's word or not? Okay, so God says right here that when this new covenant comes, I'm not going to remember their sins anymore. I'm just waiting for somebody to grunt an amen. Is it misprinting my Bible? Did I just read that? Is it on the screen behind me? I will remember their sins no more. Where there is remission, that means removal. Of sins, there is no longer offering for sin. And by the way, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, removal, forgiveness of sin. So when is the last time Jesus has shed blood? 2,000 years ago. So if you're, if you're sitting here in 2018 and your sins have not been de- dealt with, the only way that God will forgive sin is there has to be more bloodshed for it then. If you're one of those Christians that don't believe in future forgiveness of sin. Because if we don't believe in future forgiveness of sin, then we all need to go home and pray that Jesus will return again to get on the cross again to shed his blood again for us. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Jesus shed his blood last time 2,000 years ago. And by the way, all your sins and mine were future when he did that. That's how people come up with stupid doctrines of the devil and tell you that people that have committed suicide that were believers go straight to hell. Because they don't believe in the future forgiveness of sin. So they said, you know, surely killing yourself is a sin. Thou shalt not kill even yourself. And so therefore that poor Christian killed himself. And therefore he couldn't ask for forgiveness because he was dead. And so he didn't confess his sins one by one. Therefore he's unforgiven. And no sin shall enter into that place. Therefore he is in hell. All that is lies. It's all lies. I've hung around people before. 
that believe that way. Well, God don't forgive you. You've got to confess them one by one. If you don't confess one, then you're done. So your salvation is not dependent upon Jesus. It's dependent upon your memory and your ability to confess every sin you've ever committed. So you're the Savior. You're saving yourself. Or you say, when I die physically, then I will be righteous and holy. So Jesus is not your Savior. Then death is your Savior. So death is going to save you. Once you die physically, that's going to make you a better person. So we should start worshiping death. Because death is your Savior. No, the Bible says death is your enemy. Well, I bet this is going over good like a rat sandwich over on some on Facebook today. It's the truth. It'll make you mad or set you free, whichever one. Well, it says here the Holy Spirit testifies these things. Some of you, you know, the Holy Spirit, you know, Brother Dale, he convicts me of my sin. Really? So the Holy Spirit's not God then? Is that what you're telling me? So how can the Holy Spirit, who is God, who don't remember your sins, convict you of something that he chooses not to remember? Look at what he says. He says, their sins and lawless acts... Their deeds, I will remember how long? Because of what Jesus has done, neither God the Father nor God the Holy Spirit remembers your sins anymore. Is that right? So how can the Holy Spirit convict you of sin if he don't remember them? It's like Jesus said that I'm going to pay for sin, the Father's going to remove them, but the Holy Spirit says, well, don't worry about it, Father, I'll remind you of them. If Jesus took away the sin of the world, what, what demon is bringing it back? Are you saying that Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross? He took away the sin of the world. The Holy Spirit, who is God, goes and retrieves it and brings it back and reminds you of it. You're going to try to sell me that? I'm not buying. Well, I remember reading somewhere in the Bible where it says he convicts us of sin. That's the problem right there. (laughs) By the way, that's in John 16, and he never says that. Because he's such a loving God, he said he convicts the world of, of, their, of the sin of unbelief because they don't believe in him. And, and he convicts them of their sin of unbelief so that they will come to his son Jesus and receive life. And once they've received that life, all the Holy Spirit will do is he will bring and speak. And the word convict means the same word convince. And when the Holy Spirit says anything to you, he's going to point you back to Jesus, not to your sin that you've been delivered from. And he's trying to convince you that you're righteous. And not that you're an old sinner saved by grace. That's what the Holy Spirit does. You may say, I know I've sinned. You know, I I felt that prick in my heart, Brother Dale. (laughs) I know the Lord convicted me. Just as soon as I said that curse word, I felt the Holy Spirit convict me of my sin. (laughs) I'm not making fun of you, man. I used to believe all that junk myself. That's what I was taught. He pricked my heart. I tell you, I felt convicted. And I just laid on the floor and I cried for half a day, begging him to forgive me. <laughs> oh, man, what mess is that? <laughs> well, something, I felt something go off in me. Well, it wasn't the Holy Spirit, I tell you that. Uh, the Bible says your conscience can convict you. Your conscience, that ain't the Holy Spirit. Um, 
isn't that Holy Spirit? No, no, that's not Holy Spirit convention. Uh, have you ever wondered how you even know when you've sinned? See, the Bible says, Paul said in Romans 7, 7, I would not even known sin. I would not even known that I had sin except through the law. So the only way that I would know sin is the law is what helps me to know sin. And the law was given so that sin would become exceedingly sinful. So if you're feeling condemned, don't blame the Holy Spirit. It's the law that condemns you. And that's what the law is supposed to do. The law convicts you of your sin. So some people, Christians, try to wiggle out of this by drawing a distinction between conviction and condemnation. Well, you know, now we, we, we have conviction, Brother Dale, but we don't have condemnation. Oh, yeah? Where are you getting that from? They say that conviction is good. You know, it's, that comes from God. But condemnation, now, we agree, that's bad. That comes from the devil. But if we're talking a sin, then there's no scripture that supports that distinction. None. You've you got to understand this. The word convict, and it's literally translated this like in the NIV in John 16 and 8, literally means to refute. It means to find fault or to call to account. Uh, this is what the law was designed to do. 2 Corinthians 3, 9 says that, in order that you might be led to Jesus and that you would receive the free gift, listen to this, of what you get when you get Jesus, and that is Romans 8 and 1, no condemnation. There is now, therefore, how much? No condemnation to them that are what? In Christ Jesus. And so what the Holy Spirit does, because he is God and he loves this, he loves the world, for God so loved the world. That the Holy Spirit, the Bible says in John 16, 8 through 10, he convicts the world of the sin of unbelief. But the only thing he convicts or convinces a Christian of is of their righteousness. The hardest thing the Holy Spirit has to do is to convince you and I that we are righteous. Not by what we see in the mirror, but by what God did in our hearts. When you sin... Your conscience might convict you. The law might convict you. But while all this convicting is going on, the Holy Spirit will only be there to remind you of your standing in Christ Jesus. Your righteousness, or let me say it this way, your right, it's not your righteous acts that you do that makes you righteous, right? You can do all the righteous acts, deeds, that you can muster to do, but that will not make you righteous in the sight of God, right? You agree with that? So if your righteous acts will not, deeds will not make you righteous, then your unrighteous acts will not make you unrighteous. Only Christ makes you righteous. Do you see that? So verse 19 or 18, where there's no remission of these, there's no longer an offering for sin. So since Jesus is no longer offering his blood, being crucified daily, then that means he is taking care of the sin problem, right? That's what it says. Verse 19, therefore, brethren, talking to Christians, having boldness to enter the holiest by what? By the blood of Jesus. You're not coming by your performance. Anything, you're coming by what? The blood of Jesus. He says this is in verse 20, a new and what? Living way, that word, it means life-giving way. It's a new and life-giving way, which he consecrated for who? For us, through the veil. That is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, look at this. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. 
having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. God's faithful. God, God is faithful. And God doesn't change, and I want to tell you something else don't change. His word doesn't change. And there's a verse that said, I have exalted my word even above my name. And when you, when you have that confidence in an unchanging God who is always the same, good day, bad day, he's the same towards you. He has an undivided heart when it comes to you. Then what you do is all of his promises, the New Testament says, are yes and what? Amen. None of God's promises are maybe, perhaps, I might. Paul said all of the promises of God are yes and let it be so, amen, for you. So when you can find a promise in God's word that applies to your situation or circumstances, God already says to you, yes. So before you even ask him, he's already said, yes, amen. Yes and amen. Why? Because God is faithful. Heaven and earth pass away. God's word doesn't change. God is not a man that he should lie. God can't lie. So an unchanging God is what changes you and I. If you could have the perception of you that God has of you. I think Bill Johnson is the one that said it. I remember hearing this years ago that may not get it just right. But he said, I can't afford to have a thought in my head or in my heart about me that God doesn't have about me. I can't afford to live a day thinking about me in a way that God doesn't think about me because if I have thoughts about me that are different than the thoughts that God, God says, I know the thoughts and the plans that I have for you. I have thoughts and plans for you, Jeremiah says that, 29. Not to harm you, but to give you hope and a future. I got good thoughts towards you. I've got good plans towards you. God said, I have thoughts towards you. Don't you want to know what those thoughts are? See, you need to learn to ask God, like I've been trying to tell you in these last few weeks, divine questions. God, God, what are the all things that you've freely given to me in my circumstances now? What are those things? God's just waiting to answer those. He loves to talk to you. And when you talk to God and when you pray to God and when you relate to God, do you do it with full assurance and confidence? Do you realize that the Bible says that you're to come boldly to a throne room of what? Grace, and he's not sitting on a swivel chair, and he will never turn his back. Do you understand that? So you come boldly. And, and who does the Bible tells us that are the bold? It says the righteous are bold. Come on, y'all read the Bible. Y'all can participate with me. The righteous. <laughs> I love you, girl. The righteous are bold as a what? As a lion. Why, why are they not bold as a grizzly bear? Why are they not bold as a whatever? Fill in the blank. But it says they're bold as a lion. Because who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? So why does Satan come to you as a roaring? What? Why don't he come to you as a roaring serpent or a wolf or a, what a, a jaguar or whatever, you know? Sorry, Ron, about Jacksonville. 
<laughs> whatever. Why, why, why the terminology? Is there not revelation in all of this? Sure there is. So Satan comes to you, us, as a roaring what? But in the Old Covenant, when God is depicted coming to his church, he's, God is the lion, and he says he will roar out of Zion. You know when a lion's roaring? When he's conquered. And so the revelation of this, that Satan comes acting like that's really God. He comes roaring as a lion. He impersonates that this condemning voice is accusing you and condemning you is really God talking to you. And God's condemning you. And God is displeased with you. And God dislikes you. And God has removed his presence. And he, he roars like and tries to make you think that he's the lion roaring against you. But Jesus is the real lion of the tribe of Judah. And the righteous are as bold as he is. Do you not think that Jesus approaches the Father with boldness? Or does he come with fear and trembling and timidity? No. So the righteous are as bold as Jesus is what the verse is saying. Because why? Because God put you in Christ, in Jesus, so he could relate to you and treat you like he does Jesus. In John 17, the last earthly prayer that Jesus ever prayed before he was crucified. It's a long prayer. It's the prayer that he prayed in the garden. And in that prayer, he said, Lord, let the same love that you have for me be also in them. As you and I are one, then let me and them be one. And let us be one in you and you in us. And it's just that what I call that divine entanglement. And he says, so that the same love that you have for me shall also be in them. In other words, that God, the same love that God has for the Son, that he would love us in that same way and that we would love him in the same way that the Son loves him. That's the miracle that happened in your spirit. Because see, you really do want to do the right thing. You've given up on trying, I hope, to do right in order to be right. Because not right doing is not what makes you right. Right believing. Believing in the goodness of God through his son Jesus. And that makes you right before God. People say, well, you need to get right with God. That only applies to people that's never met him and not been born again. But once you've met him, then God's made you right with him. You may not always behave right, act perfectly, do those things, but, but you are being transformed because your mind's being renewed day by day. And every day that you live for God, it is my faith and confidence through his word that you will display and manifest more of the righteousness that's in your spirit. And people in the world that can't see your spirit but can see your good deeds will be touched by you. And their heart will go out and turn to him. Because they see him inside you. How many receive that today? Would you stand to your feet, give God praise? We're, we will be here after we do this. I want my elders and elders' wives to come uh, and stand up here, like immediately. <laughs> oh, this is going to be so hard to do. I hate this. This is when I hate my job.
We are going to pray Pam and Billy Ray Lee, one of my elders, one of my dearest sons in the Lord. And I told him that I would only do this at the end of the service because if I tried to do it at the first, I'd be toast <laughs> and wouldn't have gotten to preach to you. Um, and uh, they're moving to Kentucky to be near their grandbabies, and I totally get that. I totally get that. Uh, my wife sold their house. She's a realtor, and I'm a little bit ticked off with her because she did it so quick. Uh, <laughs> yeah, thanks, Jill. Appreciate it. Um, <laughs> but uh, we're going to pray them out. They're going to be here a couple of more weeks, and uh, I think I'm right on all this, but a couple of more weeks anyway. But uh, we wanted to, to uh, pray for them today. Now, after we do this, if you're here today and... Um, anything I've said or preached that you want prayer, then, hey, this is my elders, and we're here to pray with you and for you and agree with you, and we love you guys. We really do. This is an amazing church, and I don't think we're better than anybody else in this community or county, but, but we are different, and, and, and because we're different, we don't, we don't say that if you're not just like you know, Grace Point, then you're wrong. We, we, I don't mean that at all, but I'm so glad that we are a multicultural, multiracial, diverse congregation in this city, in the dirty, dirty south, and we, we are here, and, and, and I, I am so glad uh, because I, I can't make none of that happen no way. I've never tried to reach a certain eco, you know, uh, uh, you know. in other words, I've never tried to preach to uh, rich people or poor people or white people or black. I don't know how to do nothing but just preach. When I first got called to preach because I was so young, they would churches would ask me to come preach a youth revival. I, I don't know how to preach a youth revival. I just went and preached. If there was youth there, hallelujah. If it was old people, hallelujah. I'm, I don't know how to, you know, calibrate it. You know, I'm, I don't know how to do that. Well, you need to preach, you know, get more, you know, rich people. Well, how do you do it? Where's, where's, what is a rich people sermon? How about meet me in the parking lot and tell me how to reach rich people? We're all, <laughs> Yeah, I got a house full. You all rich in Christ. You, I mean, you know, we're, that's what I'm saying. We're all poor without God. So I'm glad to be part of this church. I met Billy Ray and Pam Lee in 1998. He's been with me ever since. The Bible says, "Who can find a faithful companion?" This man, and boy, I tell you, I've seen him come, seen him go, and uh, but this man right here is just—he has he stood the He's living in Valdosta because of Jesus and me second. That's why he moved here. He moved here because of the ministry and because of our connection and moved from Hazelhurst to here. I met him in Alma. He was on staff there at a church we met when they were in a little storefront there. I actually met him before that, before he ever got to that storefront. He was a deacon in a Methodist church, and I went there and ran a week's revival, and, uh, and that's where we first crossed paths. Uh, and uh, he, I've been with him ever since. He's been with me. I don't know. We've been with each other. And, uh, and he also works at the church here. He's over our grounds and, and maintenance and all that. And, and, and we just, man, we hate to see him go. I just, I told him I was going to be out the Sunday we was dead, dead you know. But uh, he, he wouldn't let me. <laughs> but uh, Billy Ray, you and Pam want to tell him something. We love all of you. You know I'll cry. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, a friend, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, sent me uh, a text the other day, and 
I just responded to him like this, that we're not leaving, we're just relocating. So there's going to be a part of Grace Southland, Graceland, Grace Point in Kentucky. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Well, y'all want y'all to express your love now. Y'all still going to be here a couple more Sundays, right? Or maybe be packing. I don't know. You may have to go down there to the house we'll to hook in it. We'll know more tomorrow. That's right. They're looking at my wife again. <laughs> Way to go, Jill. <laughs> but, man, I hate to see you. Uh, I hate to lose anybody. I, I just, not losing them, but like you said, relocating. But as a grandparent, Man, them grandbabies, if they hauled mine off somewhere, I'd be loading up, heading out to. I tell you, I, I'd about do whatever to be closer to them grandbabies because uh, you only got that window. So I just, I'm, I get it. I understand it. Still breaks my heart, but I understand it. <laughs> well, I don't understand it, and I, don't, I, don't, I just don't know what you're doing, Billy, right? <laughs> Pam, I think this is all your fault, but I'm, I'm going to take the load off of Billy. So. <clears throat> yeah, I know, I know. So. <clears throat> well, guys, I, I'm actually sad to see you go, too, very much so. You've been a pillar and a strength and an encouragement for so many. You've been, uh, you've been seasoned and you've been planted. <clears throat> and God's just going to use you in a new venue. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, some of the some of the stresses of life that are here and associated here, you're going to be freed up, and and um, <clears throat> you know you, your days of kingdom work are definitely not through. Um, you think you're going up there for the grandkids? I think God's got some different plans for you when you get up there. I think your I think your extension is going to be a lot further than just kids and uh, grandkids. Um, I think God's going to show you some opportunities and. Uh, create some new relationships and uh, I think you guys are going to be surrounded by a lot of kids and grandkids that you're going to speak into and uh, that you're going to speak life into and they need to see the solidness and the foundation of your relationship. They need to see the God that you know and that you have a relationship with and they got to see how that plays out in their life and what it means for them at, at you guys age and what it means for them at their age is they're still raising their kids. And so, Lord God, we just, uh, we just extend, Lord God, great covering and great passion and great grace for the ministry that they're moving into, Lord God. Well, Father, I pray that this transition is just as seamless as, as going to visit for the weekend, Lord God. And I pray, Lord God, that you give great grace and great mercy as they move into this new time and season of their life, Lord God. I pray that you give them, Lord God, vision to see beyond what they're even seeing now, Lord God, beyond their kids and their grandkids, Lord God, but to other families that they're going to speak life and liberty and freedom into, Lord God. Lord God, I pray that uh, you create community and relationship wherever they go, Lord God. And I pray the grace that covers them here is manifest and multiplied, Lord God, in Kentucky, Father. Lord, I bless them. Lord God, I thank you for the foundation that they've meant to us in this ministry, Lord God. And I thank you, Lord God, for the extension of what you're doing in their life, Father. Much grace. Much grace, oh God. Much grace. Anybody else got anything? <laughs> you good? 
So, well, Lord God, we just uh, thank you for this word. <clears throat> Hang on, I got to stop for a minute. So, uh, um, so during the service, and I, I, I can't say I've ever felt this before, but during the service, 